if you would turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We are continuing our series in Genesis. Uh, last week we dealt with verse 1 and kind of gave just a, a brief, I guess you could call, overview of, of Genesis and what we're going to be trying to uh, look at here. Uh, this week we're going to be dealing specifically with verses 1 through 13 in the first three days of creation. And what I want to do, I think, to just kind of set this so you can kind of get your minds around it, you really kind of have to read this all together to set the whole context. So let's read Genesis 1, uh, verses, I will read Genesis 1, uh, verses 1 through 31. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let, let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the, earth, under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the, let the earth sprout veg, vegetation and plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which, there, which is their seed, according, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their kind, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said... Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day, and God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea, sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, 
He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every plant, green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We give you glory for your word. We give you glory because you are indeed the all-powerful, the almighty, eternal creator of the heavens and the earth and everything that we find here, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would help us now to understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, last week we looked a little bit at the questions of who am I, where did all these things come from, what is the meaning of life, those fundamental questions that mankind's been asking really since, I guess, since the time of the fall and, and shortly after that. But the more provocative question that we began to explore last week and, and try to get our minds around, and the question is, is why? Why is there something rather than nothing? Now understand, there have been many theories about that from secular people who, secular scientists and physicists are trying to get their minds to answer this perplexing question of, of why, but the reality is, is that really they don't have any idea. Atheist journalist Ron Rosenbaum exposes this in this article where he views a book by the science journalist named Jim Holt, and the book that Jim Holt wrote was called, Why Does the World Exist? And so what Jim Holt does, he goes around and he interviews uh, very prominent physicists and scientists and philosophers. They ask them that question. Why? Why does the world exist? Why does anything exist? And what was the conclusion? Well, Rosenbaum tells us here, we have the quote on the screen, the search goes on. Holt has taken it further and with greater stringency than ever before. We still don't know. Let's not pretend that we do know. Because all the theories that they were, they were trying to give to Jim Holt, Jim Holt was like, that doesn't work. <laughs> We don't know. He says, let's not pretend that we do, but here's the thing, and I want to say this with, with all due respect and with gentleness and grace, and that is this, is that you do know. And really what you're doing is you're, you're lying to yourself. How can he say that? That is so mean. I can say that only on the authority of God's word. In God's word, Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul tells us, and I just want to read that briefly here for in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the apostle Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So you have to understand, dear friends, it's not a question of whether or not people have enough evidence. Does God exist? Is there a God? 
We have all the evidence you could possibly have. The heavens declare the glory of God. His eternal power and nature are clearly, clearly uh, uh, revealed in what has been made. And not only is it uh, very clear in terms of what has been made, but it's also, Paul will tell us in, in Romans chapter 2, it's clear according to our conscience because as we read in Genesis 1, we're created in God's image. And so we have what Calvin called the sensus divinitatis. We have a sense of the divine because we are created in God's image. And so what that means is, is that there's no such thing as a person who doesn't know that not just a God exists, but the one true and living God. But we suppress what we know to be true about God that's clearly revealed in creation in our consciousness in unrighteousness. We want to keep being our own gods. We want to do what we think is right and come up with our own systems of morality and ethics. Find our own way. We want to be, as they say, the captains of our own ship. And I don't want to be confused with the facts that this one true God truly is exists. He is the reason for everything. And so the who, what, where, why questions are answered in Scripture. And the answer is the eternal self-existent, self-sufficient, unchangeable, incomprehensible, holy, sovereign, triune God who dwells in unapproachable light, created all things as a display of and for his immense glory. And central to that glory, as we saw last week, is the eternal plan of redemption that the triune God initiated before time even began where the Father chose a multitude of hell-deserving sinners in Christ, and then Christ comes forth in the fullness of time, and he comes and he dies on the cross and rises from the dead to redeem them, to save them, and the Holy Spirit now comes, and he perfectly applies the perfect plan of salvation that was decreed from before time even began. And everything here on earth is with a view to that plan. That's what everything here is all about. And Genesis is the foundation. It's the beginning of that amazing story. And so last week we looked at verse 1, and now we want to turn to the specifics of creation and what occurred in those six days when God created the heavens and the earth. And today we want to focus specifically on days 1 through 3. We're not going to deal with all the days. I'm going to have a hard time getting through just the first three days in this one sermon. So <laughs> there's a lot to get to. And the main idea we want to focus on of this whole passage, as we saw last week, is that we must worship the triune God alone because he is the creator of all things. That's the main idea of Genesis chapter 1, I believe. And so first thing we want to look at here, three points. First of all, God created the universe in six days. Now, as we... Look at verse 1. We have to understand verse 1. Some commentators say that verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that's just an introductory statement, but it doesn't, that's all it is. But really, I think it's more than that. Other commentators say, yeah, it's an introductory statement, but it's also really the first act of God creating. What God does here is that he creates here, we see the creation of time in the beginning, time, the creation of space, the heavens, but at this point in the creation story, as you saw, there are no stars. There are no sun and moon. That doesn't come to the fourth day. Those sun and moon and stars are created and placed in the heavens. 
So the heavens are created first. So you have the creation of time and space and matter, earth and, and energy. These, this, the, the key components of the universe are seen right here in the very first verse of the Bible. Time, space, matter, and of course matter related to energy. And God now, what he does, he's the master artist. And what he does, he creates the canvas, if you will, of the created order. And now as the master artist, he's going to begin now taking his, his divine paintbrush and begin filling in the, the wonders of this masterpiece that he's going to bring about through the sheer power of who he is. And as we explore the six days of creation, we see a pattern to the divine artistry. And that's exactly what it is. Scholars are very familiar with, especially when you get into the Hebrew text, it's just amazing to see the artistry at work here in the book of Genesis. There is an artistry here. So we see in verse 2 that the earth was created without form. That is, it's a chaotic wasteland. And it's void. It's empty. So here the picture is kind of like a potter with a piece of clay. You have space, no stars, just this blank space, and here's like this, the earth, without form. It's, it's a chaotic wasteland. It's empty, and now the potter is about to fashion everything. And so the days one through three, then, relate to how the earth was without form. The first three days of creation, God is going to be giving form to all things. He forms the earth to make it an inhabitable place where life will flourish. And in days four through six, God fills the void. And what we see here, it gets into the artistry, we see, and it's already on the, on the slide there, you see the days correspond, the forming and the filling. And so the first, first day is light, that corresponds to day four, where there's the creation of what? Sun, moon, and stars. Day two, you have the creation of sky and sea. That corresponds to day five, the creation of bird and fish. Day three, you see the creation of land and plants. That corresponds to the creation of land animals and, of course, human beings who are not land animals. So it's just a beautiful symmetry here that you see is going on. There's so much there to take hold of what God is doing. Is Yeah, there's, there's, these, there's these days of creation, but you just see so much of the wonder of what God is doing here and how it all relates and fits together. But that raises the question here that is no small point of controversy, and that is, well, how do we understand the days of creation? Are these literal days? Are these long periods of time? Are these metaphorical? What exactly is going on with these days? Now, you have to understand in the history of the church, I would say the prominent view of this is that the days here are, were considered to be literal, sequential, 24-hour periods of time. But there wasn't a unanimous consensus on that. So, for example, you go back in the church history and you see men like Origen, who interpreted this. Of course, he interpreted everything allegorically. <laughs> but then you have Augustine, you have Aquinas, you have some Puritans. And then on into the 18th and 19th and in the 20th century, very renowned solid Bible-believing scholars who don't hold to this view that this is 24-hour days in Genesis chapter 1. And so, the PCA, because we have people in the PCA who hold to differing views on how to interpret the, the six days of creation, they formed a committee to study 
what is the view here? And so they came away and they said, yeah, there, there are a diversity of, of opinions within church history on how to interpret the days. But they came away, they came away to great unity on the issue. And they came away and said, there is a diversity of views that are acceptable, provided they meet certain criteria. And here's the criteria that you have to meet. First of all, Genesis chapters 1 through 3 are the infallible, inerrant, God-breathed word. It is God's very word. Secondly, Genesis chapters 1 through 3 are historical. It is not myth. It wasn't meant to be myth. This is actual historical fact. So whatever view that you're going to hold to the views of the days of creation, if it doesn't believe, doesn't hold to that, it's not acceptable. And then you have to believe that humans did not evolve from lower life forms. So that means naturalistic evolution and theistic evolution are discounted. So that's the parameters. And so that gets into well, what are the differing views here? Don't want to spend a lot of time on this. You can uh, research this yourself. But one of the eight views is called the day-age view. That is, the days in creation are long periods of time. And sometimes they say the days overlap. And so the days could be millions or billions of years old. Long periods of time. And they, give, they, they talk about how the word day, which in Hebrew the word is yom, how very often in Scripture it's used to refer to refer more than just a 24-hour period of time. And that's true. But we have to ask the question. I'm going to try to give you the here's the view and here's maybe an issue with it. Is that the most natural reading of the text? Would the original readers have understood this to, to, to refer to long periods of time? It doesn't seem like it is the most natural reading of the text. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it doesn't seem to be the most natural reading of the text. Also, another problem is that vegetation is created on day three, but then the sun isn't created until, until day four. And there's millions and billions of years between when vegetation is created and the sun is created. That presents a little bit of a problem. But the response is, well, light was created on day one. So maybe there's something with the light. Whatever the case, we have to ask, is this the most natural reading of the text? Secondly, there's what's called the framework view. That is, the days are not literal days. It's a literary device meant to teach us about how God created the universe. And the days are arranged topically, not chronologically. So we kind of saw that with the illustration. Days 1 and 4 correspond. It's, it's all about the topics of, how, of what God did to create. Now, there's some truth to this. However, I think this view is really susceptible to lots of problems because, again, is that the natural reading of the text? But then also, people could very easily just deny the historicity of what's being said here. Matter of fact, the creator of the view, I think it was Meredith Klein, he was charged with that very thing. You're denying the historicity of, of the first chapter of Genesis. He said, no, 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 I believe in the historicity. This is historical fact, just that these aren't sequential days. Like, that's not the point of chapter 1. But again, we ask, is this a natural reading of the text? I would argue that there's some nice things to say about the framework view, but I don't think it deals, uh, deals uh, in terms of the natural reading of the text. Then there's what's called the analogical day view. 
the analogical day says that this, there's an analogy here. This is, these are God's work days. So there's an analogy. God is teaching us, you know, these aren't 24-hour literal periods of time, but there's an analogy between God's work days and our work days, and God is now setting the pattern for us to show. But these aren't 24 literal hours, days. And the reason is because they say, you know, well, look, the sun and the moon and all that weren't created until the fourth day. The solar, how we measure time, wasn't created until then. And so the first three days of creation, it can't be solar days. Age, of course, is not the issue here. There could be who knows how many years. That's not the issue. But then we have to ask again, is that a natural reading of the text? And that takes us to the calendar day view, which says, oh, these are 24-hour periods of time, sequential days, day one, day two, there was evening, there was morning the first day, and so on. These are 24-hour periods of time. And so what you have, if that's the case, what you have is then a 24-hour period of time, and as you read through Genesis and you start adding up genealogies, that means that the earth is very young. Because secular science is telling us that the universe is 13.7 or 13.8 billion years, give or take a few hundred thousand years, and that the earth itself is only 4 billion years. But here, Genesis, if the, if the, day, if the calendar they view is true, it flies in the very face of that. And so the, issue, the tension is how do you reconcile that? This view, I think, has the benefit of being, I think, the most natural reading of the text, straightforward reading of the text. And then you go to places like Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, where it gives the rationale for the Sabbath, and it says that in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth and rested on the seventh day. So the assumption seems to be that what happened back there in Genesis, God was setting the pattern, the exact pattern that you have, 24-hour days, literal days. But what does Pastor John believe? <laughs> I, I like what my, one of my professors, Vern Poitras, Dr. Vern Poitras at Westminster, he says, I, well, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but um, he said, I favor this view the most. <laughs> okay? And uh, I think second for me would be the analogical view day. But if you're going to pin me down, you have to, you know, it's the 24-hour day that I think is the most natural reading of the text. And uh, these other views, I say, are, are acceptable views. There are good exegetical reasons that are given. I like what the committee report said about that. There's this divergencies of views provided. You're not den denying the historicity of the text. You're not denying the historical Adam. And so I think on this issue, the old saying, in essentials unity, what's the essentials of the creation? This is history. Adam was real. He didn't evolve from the primordial slime. Okay? And so you can have, we can discuss these things and not divide over them. I think that's helpful. And we have to also understand Genesis 1 is not trying to answer the question of how old is the universe. That's not, that's not what he's trying to do. It's really showing us here's who God is and here's what God did in creating the universe. And by the way, with regard to the age of the earth, and it was, it's a, is it a young earth or an old earth, there are many lines of scientific evidence that would show that the universe not only could be young, but it must be young. I don't have time to go into all the lines of evidence, but there's many compelling scientific reasons that could demonstrate, hey, it seems like the universe is, is young. 
and you know the universe is created with the age of appearing of, of of being old. It's created in a mature state and so on. Uh, what about starlight, for example? How do you account for starlight? And uh, again, astrophysicists, Christian astrophysicists who are well trained in this field, they say, yeah, well, they have come up with. Uh, theories that, that, that can demonstrate that light travels differently in space. And so when you look at the stars, no, you're not looking back into the distant past. You're actually seeing those stars in real time, or as close to real time as you can get. Because we don't understand how light functions in space. And they gave all kinds of mathematical things, very compelling theories. Well, that raises the question then, how does this square with modern science? Inquiring minds also want to know. And of course, with modern science, we mean secular science. Because you have to understand there is a difference. You know, when we talk about science, what do you mean by that? Because everybody who does science has a worldview. We have presuppositions through which we are interpreting all the facts of creation, what Van Til would call the brute facts. Nobody interprets Nobody just looks at brute facts on their own. We're, we're looking through everything through the, through the lenses of our worldview, and that's interpreting how we, that's an impacting how we interpret the facts that we see. And so secular science operates through the presupposition of Darwinian macroevolution. Well, that's a mouthful. Darwinian macroevolution. In other words, I like how some people call this particles to people evolution or molecules to man. That's an easy way. Think of that for a second. All there was was a primordial soup, and then molecules and things came together, and then eventually over billions of years, here we are. And so this theory says that life arose from non-life by spontaneous generation, all brought about by chance through blind, random processes over the course of billions of years. That's the fundamental presupposition. Now, we also, as believers, have our presuppositions. Can't escape them. We all have them. But this is the fundamental presupposition for scientists. And they take macroevolution as not merely being a theory, but as being absolute fact. As a matter of fact, today, if you, as a scientist, deny that Darwinian evolution is a fact, you're going to be, you're going to be laughed out of the academy. There'll be scorn, and there have been people who have said, there's, been, there's a big movement of scientists who are questioning these things. David Berlinski is an atheist mathematician and philosopher and scientist, and he's called, he's called the theory not very nice things. <laughs> James Tor, tremendous, world-renowned chemist. He, he, he's in like, all kinds of like, nanotechnology and stuff, and he's like, yeah, when I just said this theory isn't workable, we need to examine it. Just saying that was enough to get him barred from different scientific societies. Because what's happened is it's moved from merely being a theory to try to explain life. It's moved from that. There's, there's, a, there's a religious sense to this, which makes sense because it's trying to account for the origins of life. So there's something of a religious nature, it seems, going on here. But anyway... Here's what the, the fundamental presupposition is, is that natural processes, not God, is responsible for everything that we see. Billions of years is necessary in order for 
organisms to evolve from the primordial slime. You have to have enough time for that to happen. So billions of years is a necessary precondition for this. And then common design means common ancestors, right? Well, I mean, there's, look at creation. There's, just, there's, just, there's a common design. We see, for example, monkeys and men. Two arms, two legs. I think we have different numbers of, definitely have different numbers of fingers. But they say, well, there's a common design, therefore there's a common ancestor. No, maybe that means there's a common designer. There's more ways to look at it than that. So how do we know that the theory of Darwinian evolution is true or false? How do we know it's false? Well, the first thing is that it contradicts the creation account that we have here in God's, the word that he has breathed out. That's the first thing. And in your discussions with people about these things, you don't step away from that. You don't put the Bible on the shelf. Let's just reason about the brute facts. No, you're all bringing your presuppositions to bear on the brute facts. So you're just going in. This is my, pre, this is my fundamental, this is my standard, my ultimate authority. And they have an ultimate authority, too, that they're trying to reason through. Their ultimate authority is going to be something, it might, they might appeal to reason, but then you have to account for reason. It could be science, but then you have to be able to account for science and so on. And so, the first thing is evolution is not true because it contradicts what God's word clearly teaches here. In the beginning, God versus in the beginning, primordial superchemical. That's what the scripture teaches. Next, though, we can move on that. So, okay, that's the fundamental presupposition that we have, that we have here. But now we can just look in the world of operational science. Operational science involves observation, repeating things, and then testing the results. And here's what you find with observational or operational science. Is that no one has ever observed one kind of thing become a totally different kind of thing. It's interesting, right? Scripture, we, we, we heard that word over and over again. He created these things according to what? Their kind. See, when you talk about the taxonomy of things, it gets to be a complex discussion. What do you mean by species versus kind and everything here? But it's very interesting how, how very, here we had thousands of years ago, we see this word kind. And so what you have here is, is that there's a variation within kinds. This way. But you don't get from one kind to another. Ever. Never been observed. But you do see the variation in kinds. So with Darwin and the finches, of course, you see birds over time. The, the beak gets larger or smaller, whatever the case might be. You see the peppered moths. You see how things, are, how bacteria adapt to this and, and viruses, they mutate. And they be, but it's still a virus. The bird is still a bird. You still haven't explained to us how you get from one kind to another. Haven't observed it. Let's say, well, what about the, the fossil record? In the fossil record, we see it there, don't we? Well, what do you have to have in order to demonstrate species evolving from one kind to another? Well, there should be, and this is what Darwin himself predicted, there should be millions of transitional life forms from one form to the next, you know? But what do you find in the fossil record? What you find in the fossil record is the exact opposite. What you find is this sudden appearance of fully developed life forms. Now, this is such a fundamental problem for evolutionists. Stephen Jay Gould, he was a famous evolutionary paleontologist and biologist, he said this. He said, quote, 
the evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks in school is inference. It's not the evidence of fossils. A species does not arise gradually by the gradual transformation of its ancestors. It appears all at once and fully formed. It's never been seen in the rocks. What he's saying is, instead of concluding the fossil record doesn't bear this out, it bears out instantaneous, sudden, fully developed life forms creation. So what must have happened is the evolution happened quickly. You went from one life form to the next. How can you make that claim? Here's how. Faith. It's what we call a rescuing device. This seems to be an anomaly to my system. Here's the rescuing device. It was punctuated, the technical word is punctuated equilibrium. Species went from one to the next and didn't leave behind a transitional life form. That's very convenient, though, right, for the, for the theory. What about irreducible complexity? And I love this quote here from uh, Wayne Grudem. Irreducible complexity says that for anything to work, all the parts must be in place for that thing to work. That's to, just to sum it up. So a mousetrap. For a mousetrap to work, it has to have the spring, it has to have the arm, it has to have the platform, all those things must be in place all at once in order for it to function. Now, take that and apply it to, I don't know, the cell. <laughs> and you see how difficult this becomes. Wayne Grudem says this, quote, the vast complex mutations, the vast and complex mutations required to produce complex organisms such as an eye or a bird's wing or hundreds of other organs could not have occurred in tiny mutations accumulating over thousands of generations because the individual parts of the organs are useless and given no advantage unless the entire organ is functioning. You understand? What he's saying is take the heart. The heart can't just evolve and develop. It has to be fully intact. All the chambers, everything has to be. You can't have half a heart or you know, 25% of a heart, it won't function. Let's press, the, let's press it even further. It's not just the one organ that has to be fully developed in place and have all, the, all of its parts in order for it to, to function. We have to have the nervous system in place at the same time. So you can have a heart, but if you have a nervous, nervous system, if you don't have lungs, if you don't have kidneys, guess what? Ain't gonna work. You're not gonna survive. All of those things must be placed at the time in order for it to function. Think of the eye. How can you have an eye that's in the process of developing? What's the advantage to the creature that's in that transitional stage? There is none. He wouldn't be able to see. We could go on. Next, you can't account for DNA, the information in DNA. We talked about this a little bit last week. Tremendous amounts of information that are in our DNA. Not just in our DNA, DNA for every living thing. Not only can you not account for the information, because information requires a mind. Matter doesn't produce information. And I don't care how many times you get monkeys, you sit monkeys down to type on a typewriter, they're not going to bang out Shakespeare's play. I don't care how many trillions of years you give them to try to do that. 
Not only can you not, not account for the information for the DNA molecules, you can't account for the origin of molecules to begin with. I love this interview of Ben Stein with Richard Dawkins, the eminent evolutionist, scientist, and atheist. He's, ben Stein says, quote, how did it, that is the universe, get created? Dawkins says, nobody knows how it got started. We know the sort of event that must have happened for the origin of life. And Stein says, okay, well, and what was that? Dawkins says, it was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Stein says, right. And how did that happen? Dawkins says, well, I told you, we don't know. Yet our theory is true. Believe it. If you don't, we're going to ostracize you. We can't tell you how anything, we can't account for any of this stuff. What about the origin and the function of the cell? In Darwin's day, the cell was a very simple thing. They just thought it was a blob of protoplasm. And then you put it under these high-powered microscopes, and then you say, oh, my goodness, this thing's incredibly complex. I love what James Tour, the chemist, said. He talked about, he uses the illustration of you're flying 30, let's just say you're flying 20,000 feet over New York City. And you look down, and you can see that there's buildings there. You say, oh, there's buildings there. It doesn't look too radically complex. But then you go down and you get on the ground and you, you get closer to the city and you begin to see the, the buildings and, and you see the pavement and you see all the different things that are necessary in order for the, for the city to even function. You talk about all the wiring. You talk about the steel. You talk about how things have to be designed in order for, for it to hold together. When you build a building, you can't just slap it up. There's, there's a design to that. Information's need for that. He says, take that now take the human cell and understand the human cell is infinitely more complex than any city you can imagine. Yet we're supposed to believe that it all came about through blind, random processes working over buildings. What can blind, random processes do? What purpose is it working things toward? Because information involves purpose. It means, so for example, I love, I'll use the illustration of sauce. I'm very familiar with sauce. I love making my spaghetti sauce. But to make your spaghetti sauce, you have to have the right ingredients. You've got to have onions. You've got to have garlic. We use green pepper. And you've got the, the tomato paste. You've got to have olive oil. You know, you put, you put all that together. And you get the meats. You've got to get the meats. You get all that together. But I'm making, you're not going to have tomatoes because it's tomato sauce. But if I don't have all those ingredients, the sauce isn't going to come out. I'm not making gravy, although we call sometimes sauce gravy. I don't get confused. <laughs> That's okay. We at times, we like to confuse people with stuff. So. <laughs> but if anything is off, I, I got to have onions. I can't have, you know, some other vegetable. How much more if we're talking about how just to create the onion itself? The DNA to create the onion. The genetic, the genetic information to create an onion and to create a carrot and to create the green, the green peppers, all those things. Think of how those things, those things don't just happen by themselves. My sauce, pot, pot of sauce, doesn't just happen by itself. How much more are the things that are needed to make the sauce? Life cannot come from non-life, from non-living matter. That's a fact of science. Let me repeat. Life 
cannot come from non-living matter. And then we realize that evolution cannot explain, it can't explain the physical universe in terms of how do you account for these things. They might be able to tell you, well, it, it works this way. Okay, great, but where does the information come from? How and why? All those things. You can't explain metaphysical reality, such as love. Matter of fact, Ron Rosenbaum, he said, that the whole question of why does anything exist at all, that's not even, he said, that's not even my biggest question. My other, my, my, that's the second question. My, my first question is, how and why is there love? Because if we're just, just evolved from the primordial slime, and we're just slabs of meat, why do we love? If we're slabs of meat, why do we reason? What's our reason for reason? How do you account for the laws of logic? The fundamental laws of physics that make science possible. The uniformity in nature that makes science possible. The uniformity in nature means things, how things were yesterday is how things are going to be today. There's a constancy in the universe that allows us to do science. How do you account for that? If it's blind, random processes, you can't unless you presuppose the existence of the eternal triune God as a necessary precondition for all of life. I remember I got into a discussion in Italy with a young lady, and it was a number of Italians there, and, and um, they were at, what do you do, I'm a pastor, and uh, so they said, well, what's the difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism? That's all they ever wanted to talk about. We talked about that, and this one young lady seemed very interested in all this. And so, uh, so I got with her afterward. I said, after I left, I said, hey, I'd love to be able to share more with you about these things. And she, I never forget her response. She said, oh, I believe in science. Now, how would you respond if somebody said that? I'll tell you how I responded. Great, so do I. And I can even tell you why science is possible. You want to talk some more? <laughs> And right then, we had to, the, the event we were going, we're at, started, so we didn't get a chance to finish our conversation. But that's the mistake people make, right? It's either science or it's the Bible. And we say, no, you can't make sense out of science apart from the Bible. You cannot make sense apart from anything apart from the one true God who is, because he is, and you know that he is. Well, guess what? I knew this was going to happen. I run out of time. <laughs> so let me just wrap this up. We'll come back to this next week. There is the one true living God who's created all that we know. And the amazing thing is that this God, he creates time. He's eternal. And that one God who created all that we see, created time itself, steps down into time. And he's conceived in the womb of a creature that he created. And then he does that for a specific purpose, to come and to live the perfect life that we could never live, and to die on the cross, the one who is the light of the world on the cross. We heard it on Good Friday, for the darkness that we deserve, the outer darkness, so that all those who turn from their sins and trust in him alone could be called his children. And so for you today, if you've never turned to Christ, I want to appeal to you today to stop suppressing the truth in unrighteousness.
turn to the God who is, that you know who is, and who's made a way for you to have eternal life and life abundantly in him. And then for those of us who have, how can we not rejoice in the wonders and the glories of who this God is? I think the hymn sums it up well. O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God, to thee, how great thou art. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. You are great God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you because you are indeed the great, the eternal, the sovereign, holy God of heaven and earth. And you've created all things as a display of and for your glory. And you've shown us your glory most prominently, most significantly in the person of your son, the expressed image of who you are. And Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for rising bodily from the dead. Thank you for breaking the power of sin in my life and giving me the gifts of saving faith and repentance. Thank you for pouring out the Holy Spirit upon us, O oh Lord. And thank you, Lord, for working in us so that we would do, will and do, your good pleasure. Amen. How great thou art.